Blog Talk Radio. Enter the zone. The Prophecy Zone. Your end time watchman. Bringing you light in a dark world. Where truth is rivaled with a lie. And the matrix is normal life. Luke 21. And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud, with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. You are now in the zone. So be ready to enter the light or truth about the end of days, so you will be ready for the coming of the Lord. You are in the zone, the prophecy zone. So join us for the next hour as we look at world events in line with Bible prophecy, so you'll be informed and be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. everyone this is Brenda Johnson I am the host of as the day approaches I want to welcome everyone who has joined me today on this program Uh, it's a great program we are talking about the UN resolution um, that is uh, supposed to the UN vote on the Palestinian state that is going to happen sometime apparently this next week uh, the scheduled date, per se, is the 20th of September, so it may even be a, a little bit of a week in there. But I wanted to get this show, because uh, it's the 17th right now, and so the 20th is a few days away. But it might, you know, give way to a little bit more time. Uh, it is a, a time that is kind of set, but it really is not uh, necessarily uh, planned specifically uh uh, it could change, in other words. So I wanted to get this show in before the vote because I have a lot of things to share with you today. I want to thank you for this Sunday as I am talking on the 17th, 18th, excuse me, I said the 17th, but it is the 18th on Sunday and I'm used to doing my show on Friday. But today I uh, wanted, I needed to do it on Sunday, so... I hope uh, that you enjoy this program just as much as you enjoy enjoy any of the Friday programs. But next week I will be scheduled again on Friday at the regular time from 11.30 to 1.30 Central Standard Time. Every Friday we are talking about issues regarding prophecy, regarding uh, what's going on in the world, and... uh, We're going to talk about issues. We're continuing our series on Israel, and uh, we have been focusing on uh, some of the issues and events that are happening in Israel. So today, without further uh, uh, delay, I will uh, go into this discussion about uh, the UN vote in a Palestinian state. Now, this is part two of a discussion I started last week called Dividing Israel and Jerusalem. Now, if you're just joining this conversation, when you're done here, please call up an archive and listen to this very important episode. In this episode, I briefly 
touched on what is driving the Middle East uprisings and who is behind the rebel fighters in Libya, Egypt, Syria, and the rest of the Islamic nations that face similar uprisings dominating the headlines news last March. Again, briefly, the reason for the Islamic rebels ousting Islamic leaders is similar to our scriptures that say, for for example, in Peter, 1 Peter 4.17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, similar, similarly, Islamic leaders are ousting other Islamic leaders who are uh, uh, themselves called infidels because they do not follow true Islam. And what they're doing is they're replacing these leaders with someone who will follow the pure Islamic faith as written in the Quran, Quran and the traditions, in other words, hadiths of the prophets. Uh, so what they're doing in these uprisings is cleaning house. They're saying judgment is starting with us. We're going to clean house and then we're going to conquer the world. We're going to unite as an ummah, as the uh, Islamic ummah, which is the Islamic nation. And then we are going to go where first? We're going to conquer Jerusalem and then the rest of the world. That is their goal. So this is why Jerusalem and Israel is very uh, important for us to discuss here. And so, you know, it kind of puts in perspective why they are um, uh, pushing towards a Palestinian state. Today, we will talk about how the Palestinian uprising connects with the Islamic Jihad. Um, I'm saying Palestinian with quotations. I know you can't see me, but that's what I'm doing here. So why? Because we need to ask the question, who are considered Palestinians? We will also go through some of the UN charters and resolutions that are heavily talked about with regards to creating a Palestinian state. Palestinians claim Israel is occupying Jerusalem. Is this true? We will look at these claims. Should Israel give up land gained in the 1967 war in exchange for peace? What about the armistice lines? What are these? Does Israel have any obligation to return to these lines? Sometimes, you know, when I first was uh, getting into this, I didn't know what all this, you know, resolution, the UN charters and armistice lines. And so we're going to, I'm going to, fill you in and what these are. Hopefully you can get, kind of get a picture of that before the end of the show today. So does Israel have this obligation, big question, to return to these lines? Uh, what Even the 1967 lines. What about Jerusalem? Do they have any obligation to ch share Jerusalem by dividing it between east and west? And if they agree to divide Jerusalem, what will happen Today, we will focus our attention on the upcoming UN votes scheduled to take place sometime this week. Uh, scheduled for, like I said, the 20th of September 2011. What is this vote all about? Why now? What's the push? What are Arab states uh, rushing toward, demanding Israel to come to concessions? What will happen if the vote passes? How should we view this, and can we understand it? Is it possible to understand it? 
And where did it start and where is it taking us? These are huge questions that we have to ask uh, in this whole entire discussion. Hopefully, I will get through some of the, you know, give you kind of an insight and give you kind of a perspective on it today. And maybe next week, I will have to tell you what the was really truly driving it. It's amazing. It's an amazing insight in which to uh, glean information from. So, I, you know, I'm kind of debating and determining right now at the beginning of the show that we probably won't get to that part, but if we do, I'll, I'll at least start in that direction. But today we are going to, you know, focus the scopes and kind of kind of narrow it down onto this UN-Palestinian vote. Today is going to be an interesting show, show, and my goal on this episode is to help you gain insight into this conflict in a way that you might not thought of before. I actually, it's one of my specialties where I can kind of take things and, and, and bring a different kind of perspective to it. Um, so that's what I contribute to the body of Christ. So hopefully I won't disappoint you here. Now, what does a resolution mean for the future of Israel, the Middle East, the world? So, so we think of just Israel, we think of Jerusalem, we think of the Middle East, but it doesn't have impact on the whole entire world. Makes you wonder because, you know, for for years now we have been focused on this small little little teeny piece of land. Uh uh in in news headlines. I'm I mean, I'm I'm in my forties and for a long time uh, since I have been my, in my teens, we've been focusing on this piece of land. So it still hasn't gone away. I mean, hasn't calmed down. It's actually gotten more uh, uh, focus and more attention. So in light of this, how then should we respond? Okay, the we know something as a Christian that I am, I am overjoyed to see that Israel has become a nation. Prophecy that is spoken of in, in Scripture is has been fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Whether or not Israel has completely established its autonomy, uh, yet we'll see. We we see that in the nation itself, but we also have to take in consideration that the Temple Mount is part of their autonomy. Rebuilding the Temple has always been part of uh, nationhood for Israel. So in Israel, even though they see themselves as an, a, a, you know, a nation, still they have not been able to reestablish the covenant of God within the temple. Israel has never stopped being a nation. They have been a nation from the time that God has established them. When I say becoming a nation in 1948, it is they have come back to the land in 1948 and established themselves as a group there again. Here is the Jerusalem covenant. I'll share with you today. Signed by the heads of state of Israel and affirmed by Jews worldwide. As a, and this happened on, the, on uh, the day that Jerusalem became a nation. And I'm going to share this piece with you today. 
As of this day, Jerusalem Day, the 28th day of the month of Lyre, in the, the year 5,752, 1,922 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, 45 years since the founding of the State of Israel, 25 years since the Six-Day War, during which the Israel Defense Forces, in defense of our very existence, restored the Temple Mount and the unity of Jerusalem. So this was not written on that day. This was actually written on the 27th day, and i got to think of when that was. So if anyone can come up with uh, what year that was, uh, uh, let me know. Uh, it says here con- to continue. Hang on a second. If you have any, if I have any interruptions, my children are here, so they might interrupt me from time to time. If you hear pauses, because I had to interrupt it. Uh, <clears throat> it says, okay, the twenty. 20- Five years since the Six-Day War, during which the Israel Defense Forces, in defense of our very existence, restored the Temple Mount and the unity of Jerusalem. Twelve years since the Knesset of Israel reestablished Jerusalem, unified and whole as the capital of Israel. The state of Israel is the state of the Jewish people and the capital of the people, Israel. So gaining Jerusalem as an undivided city was a very huge thing for for Israel in restoring their nation. The last thing that they have yet to restore is the Temple Mount. We have gathered together in Zion, sovereign national officials and leaders of our communities everywhere to enter into a covenant with Jerusalem, as was done by the leaders of our nation and all the people of Israel upon Israel's return to our land from Babylon, the the Babylonian exile, wherein the people and their leaders vowed to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city. Once again, our feet stand within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city joined together, which unites the people of Israel to one another and links heavenly Jerusalem with earthly Jerusalem. We have returned to the place that the Lord vowed to bestow upon the descendants of Abraham, father of our nation, to the city of David, king of Israel, where Solomon, son of David, built a holy temple and a capital city, which with time became the mother of all Israel, a city and a mother of all enactments of justice and righteousness and for the wisdom and insight of the ancient world where a second temple was erected in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. In this city, the prophets of the Lord prophesied. In this city, our sages taught Torah. In the city of Sanhedrin convened in session in its stone chamber. For here were the seat of justice and the throne of the house of David. For out of Zion shall go forth today and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Today, as of old, we hold fast to the truth of the words of the prophet of Israel that all the inhabitants of this world shall enter within the gates of Jerusalem. All it shall come 
it shall come to pass in the end of days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be well established in the peak of the mountains and will tower above the hills and all the nations shall stream towards it. Each and every nation will live by its own faith for all the people will go forth uh, each t- with its own divine name. We shall go to the name, to the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in this spirit, the Knesset of the state of Israel has enacted a law establishing the place is holy to the peoples of all religions shall be protected from any desecration and from any restriction of free access to them. Jerusalem, peace and tranquility shall reign in the city. Play for the, uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those that love you be tranquil. May there be peace within your walls and tranquility within your palaces. Out of Jerusalem, a message of peace went forth and shall yet go forth again to all the inhabitants of the earth. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not lift up sword against nation, or shall they learn war anymore. Our sages of blessed memory have said, in the future, the Holy One, the Blessed, can comfort Jerusalem with peace. From this place, we once again take our vow. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand lose its strength. May my tongue stick to the pellet if I do not remember you. If I do not raise up Jerusalem at the right height of my rejoicing. And with all this understandings, we enter into this covenant and write, we shall bind you to us forever. We shall bind you to us with faithfulness, with righteousness or justice, with steadfast love and compassion. We love you, O Jerusalem, with eternal love, with the unbound love under siege and when liberated from the yoke of oppressors. We have been martyred for you. We have clung to you. Our faithfulness to you shall be quest to our children after us. Forevermore, our house shall be with you. In certification of this covenant, we sign Jerusalem. And I got this out of Jerusalem Rushing Towards the Midnight Hour by Robert Smith, 2001. This was a covenant that was made after the reestablishment of, of the unifying of Jerusalem. This is what Jerusalem means to the state of Israel. And this is one of the big uh, discussions that it's having today. Palestine, the Palestinians um, are going after a state and trying to have a, a state established, and we need to talk about what this entails. Let me give you a little insight on Islam and whether or not their intentions are for peace with Israel. As Israel has stated in this covenant, they want peace in their city. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that they want to honor uh, and allow the holy uh, places to um, be respected. Unfortunately, this has not been the case with uh, the Palestinians and Islam, for Islam doesn't even let Israel go up onto the Temple Mount, something historically uh, 
historically not given but historically established as a place where uh, Israel had put up the temple. I have done a show on uh, the Temple Mount, and I talked about uh, from Israel's perspective and the historical evidences of the Temple Mount. Very, very informative show. And I also then did a show on the Temple Mount with regards to Islam and how Islam uh, views the Temple Mount. It's the third uh, holy site for Islam. And we went into a discussion about that on how they perceive uh, Jerusalem, how they perceive the holy site. Right now, I want to focus your attention on the attitudes in which uh, each nation, each peoples has in regards to, and I'm not saying that all Palestinians or all, um, is Islam Islamic uh, people within the state of Israel right now feel this way, but I want you to hear exactly what the uh, Quran speaks about regarding peace with Israel. Um, <clears throat> who they call infidels. And it, it is actually Islam that is established on the mount. It is Islam that is keeping people from actually uh, having access to the holy sites. And Israel has had to fight its way. Even though Israel has Jerusalem, per se, it still does not have the holy sites in which they honor. They have the Western Wall. But that is about it for what they have. Okay, the Quran in Surah 8.59 says, The infidels should not think that they can get away from us. Prepare against them whatever arms and weaponry you, you can muster so that you, can, you may terrorize them. Now, every week, Islamic Palestinians are hearing from their leaders. And this is an, a little bit old information, but I want to I share this with you so that you can kind of have an idea because it's not gotten any less informative, any less uh, uh, vindictive in a sense. I can't, I, I don't know if I'm saying these words right, but Selimman Satari, PAT, Palestinian TV, on November 18th, 2005, said this, destroy the infidels and the polytheists. Your, meaning Allah's, enemies are the enemies of the religion. Count them and kill them to the last one and don't leave even one. Yusuf Abu Saneh, voice of, the, of Palestine, September 2nd, 2005, said, the infidel country is first and foremost the USA, have succeeded greatly in tearing our Islamic world apart. Ibrahim Madaris, Palestinian TV, in February 28, 2003, said this, the United Nations, to our regret, has become Dar al-Nadwa, literally meaning House of Assembly, the term for pre-Islamic meeting places in Mecca, because that is where the infidels meet. Um, this enmity is neither time or event dependent, but it is presented as part of Allah's plan. According to the report by Palestinian Media Watch, the call for genocide against all infidels on Palestinian TV has become a regular occurrence. 
The ultimate victory of Islam over the Christian West is said to be predetermined. The Palestinian nation is the strongest on the earth, they say. We, Muslims, have ruled the world, and a day will come by Allah, and we shall rule the world again. The day will come, and we shall rule America. The day will come, and we shall rule Britain. What I just quoted you is out of Brigitte Gabriel's book, Why They Hate. And she, Bridget, knows this conflict firsthand. She grew up in the Palestinian conflict that was waged against Israel in her own country of Lebanon. She says, when, this is what she says, when Lebanese Muslims and Palestinians declared jihad on Christians in 1975, we didn't even know what the word meant. We had taken the Palestinians in, giving them refuge in our country, allowing them to study side by side with us in our schools and universities. We gave them jobs and shared our way of life with them. What started as a political war spiraled very fast into a religious war between Muslims and Christians, with Lebanese Muslims joining the PLO fighting the Christians. We didn't realize the depths of their hatred and resentment toward us as infidels. The more the Christians refused to get involved in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and to allow the Palestinians to use Lebanon as a launching pad from which to attack Israel, the more the Palestinians took a, uh, looked at us as the enemy. Muslims started making statements such as, first comes Saturday, then comes Sunday, meaning first we fight the Jews, then we come for the Christians. Christian presence, influence, and democracy became an obstacle in the Palestinians' fight against Israel. Quranic verses such as Surah 551, believers, take not Jews and Christians for your friends. They are but friends and protectors of each other, became a driving force in recruiting Muslim youth. Many Christians barely knew the Bible, let alone the Quran, and what it taught about us infidels. Musab Hassan Youssef, in his book, The Son of Maha, uh, Hamas, states, Peace in the Middle East has been the holy grail of diplomats, prime ministers, and presidents for more than five decades. Every new face on the world stage thinks he or she is going to be the one to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And each one fails just as miserably and completely as those who who have come before. The fact is, few Westerners came close to understanding the complexities of the Middle East and its people, but I do, by virtue of most the most unique perspectives. You see, I am a son that re of that region and of that conflict. I am a child of Islam and the son of accused terrorists. I am also a follower of Jesus. Let's take a look at the conflict through the eyes of Musab Yusuf. Musab Hassan Yusuf is the oldest son of Sheikh Hassan Yusuf, one of the seven founders of Hamas organization. Musab was born in the West Bank village of Ramallah and was part of one of the most religious Islamic families in the Middle East. His grandfather, Sheikh Yusuf Dawood, was a religious leader or imam for the village of Al-Janiyah, 
located in the part of Israel that it, that the Bible calls Judea and Samaria. Al-Jania was a very peaceful place nestled in the gently rolling hills a few miles northwest of Ramallah. When his grandfather was at home, he welcomed a steady stream of visitors. He was more than the imam. He was everything to the people and in the village. Musab's father, Hassan, was his favorite son. Hassan knew and cared nothing about politics for for economics. He simply wanted to be like his father. He wanted to read and change the Quran to serve people. But he was about to learn that his father was much more than a trusted religious leader and beloved public servant. Musab Yusuf, Hassan Yusuf, uh, said his father was not sent to Jerusalem simply to study religion. His father was preparing him to rule. So for the next few years, my father, he said, lived and studied in the old city of Jerusalem beside Al-Qasa Mosque. My father had a great zeal and potential, <coughs> excuse me, than he had originally thought. My grandfather sent him to Jordan for advanced Islamic study. As you will see, the people he met through would um, met would ultimately change the course of my family's history and even affect the history of conflict in the Middle East. Between 1517 and 1923, Islam, personified by the Ottoman Caliphate, spread from its base in Turkey across three continents. But after a few centuries of great economic and political power, the Ottoman Empire became centralized and corrupt and began its decline. In March 1928, Hassan al-Banna founded the Society of the Muslim Brothers, popularly known as the Muslim Brotherhood. The goal of the new organization was to rebuild society according to Islamic principles. In 1948, the Muslim Brotherhood attempted to a coup d'etat against the Egyptian government, which the Brotherhood blamed for the nation's growing secularism. <clears throat> Muslims throughout the Middle East were outraged. According to the Quran, when an enemy invades any Muslim country, all Muslims are called as one to fight to defend their land. From the viewpoint of the Arab world, foreigners had invaded and now occupied Palestine, home of the Al-Qasa Mosque, Islam's third holiest place on earth after Mecca and Medina. The mosque was built on the site from which was believed Muhammad had traveled with the angel Gabriel to heaven and spoken with Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. I uh, actually shared with you in um, the Temple Mount Islam about this very thing on the night journey. It's called the night journey, and I actually shared with you on that show. I will not go into that here, but this is what it's talking about. When Muhammad traveled with the angel Gabriel, he traveled in a certain kind of beast that flew him to, to Jerusalem. Some think, think it's metaphorical, but now they're starting to really believe that this is actually part of the eschatology and the coming of the Mahdi. So they're at, that's why they are 
um, holding in high esteem the Al-Qasa Mosque in Jerusalem right now. And that would be the only connection that Islam has to uh, the Temple Mount. Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and Iraq immediately invaded the new Jewish states in 1948. Among the 10,000 Egyptian troops were thousands of Muslim Brotherhood volunteers. The Arab coalition, however, was outnumbered and outgunned. Less than a year later, the Arab troops had been driven out by the Israelis. The United Nations passed Resolution 194, which stated in part that refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so, and that compassion should be paid for the property of those choosing not to return. This recommendation was never implemented. Tens of thousands of Palestinians who fled Israel during the Arab-Israeli war never regained their homes and land. Many of these refugees and their descendants live in squalid refugee camps operated by who? The United Nations to this very day. And notice that it is run by the UN and the Arab states have provided have not provided better living circumstances or demanded better learning uh, living circumstances for these refugees. So it is the UN that is supplying uh, a squalored condition for these refugees. Israel has been blamed for this when it isn't Israel that has uh, <clears throat> provided these refugees, you know, created these camps. When the now armed member of the Muslim Brotherhood returned from the battlefield to Egypt, the suspended coup was on again. But news of the overflow plan leaked out, and the Egyptian government banned the Brotherhood. Now we see today they have not banned the Brotherhood, and they're the ones that rose up and got um, Hosni Mubarak out of office. And they, So back then, though, the Egyptian government banned the Brotherhood, confiscated its asset, and imprisoned many of its members. Those who escaped arrest assassinated Egypt's prime minister a few weeks later. And then that's when Hosni Mubarak took over. Hassan al-Banna, in turn, was assassinated on February 12, 1949, presumably by the government's secret service. But the Brotherhood was not crushed. In just 20 years, Hassan al-Banna had shaken Islam out of its dormancy and created a revolution with armed fighters. By the time Hassan's father arrived in Jordan in the mid-1970s to continue his studies, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, there was well-established and beloved by his people. His father believed these men were religious reformers to Islam, as Martin Luther and William Tyndale were to the Christianity. They only wanted to save people and improve their lives, not to kill and destroy, and when Musab Yusuf's father met some of the early leaders of the Brotherhood, he said, yes, this is what I, I have been looking for. <clears throat> what his father saw in those early days was the part of Islam that reflects love and mercy. What he did see what was 
what he perhaps never yet allowed himself to see is the other side of Islam. Masav Yusuf says, Islamic life is like a ladder with prayer and praising Allah as the bottom rung. The higher rungs represent helping the poor and needy, establishing schools and supporting charities. The highest rung is jihad. The ladder is tall. Few look up when uh, to see what is at the top. And progress is usually gradual, almost imperceptible, like a barn cat stalk, stalking a swallow. The swallow never takes his eyes off the cat. It just stands there watching the cat pace back and forth, back and forth. But the swallow does not judge the depth. It does not see that the cat in, is getting a little bit closer with every pass until, in the blink of an eye, the cat's claws are stained with the swallow's blood. Traditional Muslims stand at the foot of the ladder, living in guilt for not really practicing Islam. At the top are fundamentalists, the ones you see in the news killing women and children for the glory of God of the Quran. Now listen to that. <clears throat> Did you hear what I just said? And what Masab just said. He said at the top are fundamentalists, the ones you see in the news killing women and children for the glory of God of Quran. Remember that as we go further into our show. Moderates are somewhere in between. Masab says a moderate Muslim is actually more dangerous than a fundamentalist, however, because he appears to be harmless and you can never tell when he has taken the next step toward the top. Most suicide bombers begin as moderates. Further, Islamic uh, verses from the Quran say this, the prophet and his followers are commanded to wage jihad against unbelievers and the hypocrites and to be stern against them, for their final refuge is hell. Infidels will spend eternity in a blazing fire with boiling water being poured down over their heads. All of this is within their bodies, and as well as their skins will be melted away. Surah 22. Jews and Christians are the ones whom God has cursed, and he whom God excludes from his mercy, you shall never find one to help and save him. Surah 4.52 The governments of the world should know that Islam will be victorious in all the countries of the world, and Islam and the teachings of the Quran will prevail over the world. In the 12th Imam by Joe Rosen, C. Rosenberg, he... Uh, cites a prayer, or actually he, he actually has taken it from a real prayer. This book is actually a novel, but it you know how historical fictions have some truth and some some just fictional story. The story itself is fiction, but what happens in it is not fiction, in a sense. Um, this prayer is from that. It says, O oh, mighty Lord, I pray to you to hasten the emergence of your last repository, the promised one, that perfect and pure human being, that one will fill this world with justice and peace. Make us worthy to prepare the way for his arrival and lead us with your righteous hand. 
We long for the Lord of the age. We long for the awaited one. Without him, the righteously guided one, there can be no victory. With him, there can be no defeat. Show me your path, almighty Lord, and use me to prepare the way for the coming of the Mahdi. I have talked about the Mahdi quite a bit in my shows on Islam. I did a, a series on eschatology of Islam. And if you're interested to find out more information about that, please uh, go back in the archives and and uh, view some of these um, shows that I did on the Mahdi. This prayer is actually not just in a novel type of story. It is actually said by many Muslims. You may ask me, why am I presenting this conflict this way? Well, I believe it's important to understand what's driving the conflict. In my preparations for this episode, I I try to find some good video clips on the conflict at hand. And one of these days, I am going to get live video footage where I can speak to you live as well as include some of the video footage I talk about. But for now, I post it in the Prophecy Zone. I will post it in my own personal Facebook page. I will post it in some of the end time um, uh, groups that I'm part of on Facebook. Um, and uh, you can get it through that way. Also, I have a website as the day approaches. I'm a little bit behind in updating that, but I will hopefully uh, be able to do that soon. Uh, <clears throat> but um, I try to find a video as a commercial or a, a, a blip to this particular conflict. But... After viewing a dozen clips, I had to stop because I couldn't handle what I saw, nor did uh, did I find any of these clips viewable because the blood, death, and violence they showed. Many times a child was shown killed or blood splattered on their faces or something torn off. I was appalled and horrified by what I saw. And I'm one that I can't even handle that kind of stuff. I I actually work with uh, disturbed, uh, I mean, I work with uh, uh, abused women, uh, domestic violence. Uh, But I can handle that more so than I can handle if I was a nurse. I tried to be a candy striper growing, you know, in my teen years, but I was always afraid I was going to find someone dead, you know, uh, in the room. So I actually quit because I had fear of that kind of stuff. So when I'm trying to go through these videos, I'm seeing the very things that I can't even handle myself. Even on the mission field, I didn't even want to go to places that where a child would die, like a starving place or something like that, because I couldn't handle that. So you've got to give me, you know, I tried looking at these videos, and every single Palestinian video had some kind of blood and guts and stuff so and, and I, I you know i'm sure you can view them if you want to but i cannot even put that up um now as i as you know it, these videos appalled me they really did i was disgusted i was horrified i was appalled and what it does in, in your psyche is it makes you want like well what is happening to these people why is this happening and but then i got a hold of myself and I said, I remembered uh, all that I read uh, about Islam 
and I've read over 20 books on the subject of just eschatology and what is currently happening, happening, both from Islamic uh, perspective and from uh, Christian perspective and from secular perspectives. I've read them all to get a good idea. Um, <clears throat> and uh, then I one of the video clips I saw a, a Palestinian man laying on the concrete, half on the sidewalk and half in the road, obviously in pain and obviously hurt. And then you see in the clip another man who is video, has a video camera right up in this man's face, uh, another Palestinian man. So, and then there's, a, you know, you got to see that there's a Palestinian man taping the Palestinian man taping this guy. So, so the war here is a media war, and they do this on purpose. Um, <clears throat> this is what the world sees, but they misunderstand. Uh, why were, you know, there's so many children videotaped? Well, like I said earlier in this clip, in Masad Yusuf's book, his own personal story, Son of Hamas, his father actually was a Hamas leader, um, one of the seven Hamas leaders. And what he said is that, you know, they, Islam will kill its own children and women. Because they use this as propaganda against Israel, and they tell the world that Israelis are killing innocent women and children, but the fact is Islam demands the children to be in the middle of the fight as well as the women. They demand that families share in jihad, and children are brought out to uprisings and placed in positions where it is likely that they will be wounded or killed for the cause of Islam. And the media wars are based off of all of that. The best way that I can explain this is by reading a brief clip in a book. I want to read you a little story of the Tawasan Mom. Um, <clears throat> and in this story, you'll see kind of the, see the view that they have for their children. This is about a man who's taking his children. Uh, he's he's one of the leaders in Islamic Islam. And he says, he, call, he recalled opening his eyes and gazing up upon those three beautiful, innocent gifts, the pride of his life, the, the three <clears throat> boys. Come on, come boys, he said, opening the car door for them. It's time. Where are we going? Asked Bahadur, who at the age of 12 was his oldest, oldest and certainly the tallest and whose name meant courageous and bold. We're going on a mission, he replied. A mission, said Fruits, his 11-year-old what kind of mission? It's a secret mission, Husseini said. Come quickly, and you will see. As the two older boys scrambled into the back seat, he lifted up his youngest, Quabad, and held him even longer, kissing him three times and receiving three joyful kisses back. He finally put Quabad in the back with his brothers, shut the door, got into the driver's seat, and started the engine. It was a beautiful winter day, sunny, cool, but not too cold. With a slight breeze blowing from the seat, the boys waved goodbye to their mother, whose eyes were filled with tears, and soon they were off. Why is Madar crying? Quidav asked. Husseini glanced in the rearview mirror and saw that the two youngest also had tears in their eyes. They were sensitive boys, and he loved them even more for it. 
She misses you already, he said as calmly as he could. You know her. She loves us, Colton Bod said quietly. Yes, very much, his father replied. She tucks us in every night and sings us songs of Persia, the little boy said. She buys us pomegranates, the sweetest in the world, Pruitt chimed in. Then Bahudur spoke up as well. She knows the Quran almost as well as you do, Fadar. Better, Hosseina said, glad he had not brought her, for she would never have survived this trip. Hang on a second. After an hour on the road, <clears throat> excuse me, the boys were getting antsy, poking each other, quarreling, and whining to stop and get something to eat. They still had another 30 or 40 minutes to go, and Hosseini wasn't yet ready to pull over for food. Who wants to play a game, Hosseini asked. We do, we do, they all yelled. Wonderful, he said. Here's how it works. I'll say a surah from the Quran, and you must recite it to me precisely. For this, you will receive a point. Whoever gets the most points, Madar, will make a special cake just for him. The boys cheered with glee. They had all been memorizing the words of the prophet since before they could read. In school and with the help of their mother, they each had to recite a whole chapter of the Quran to their mother before they could go out to play every afternoon. And once, when they had been invited to meet the Ayatollah at the palace, their father had made them memorize all of Surah 86 and the story of the nightcomer so they could recite it, it to Khomeini. Let me go first, please, please, let me go first. Furret shouted, no, no, we will go in order, oldest to youngest. Are you ready? They all were. The pokings were finished. The quarreling was over. Hosseini had their rapt attention now. Okay, Badr, you're first, Surah 552. Thank you, Padar, the boy replied. This is an easy one. Jews and Christians are the ones whom God has cursed and whom God excludes from his mercy. You shall never find one to help and save him. Excellent, Badr. You get one point. Now, Fruits, I'm ready. Good. You can tell me, Sarah, 533. Fruits' face darkened. For a moment, he looked as though he might panic. Then suddenly his face brightened. Yes, Padar, I remember that one. The recompense of those who fight against God and his messenger shall either be executed or crucified or have their hands and feet cut off alternately or be banished from the land. Very good, my son, Hostini said. I was worried there for a moment. <clears throat> so was I, but Madara taught me that one, and I didn't want to disappoint her. She would be very proud. I will be sure to tell her you remembered. Do I get a point? Fruits asked. Absolutely. It's one-to-one. One one. And now it's Quabad's turn. I'm ready, Quabad yelled with such enthusiasm. They all burst into laughter. Okay, here's one I taught you myself, Quabad. Surah 69. Oh, oh, I know that, Quabad said. For those who disbelieve, garments of fire are certain to be cut out for them, with boiling water being poured down on their heads, with which all that is within their bodies as well as their skins is melted away. No, my son, I'm sorry, Hosseini said. That, sir, is... <clears throat> what, sir, is that, for it? That's 22, Sarah, 22, 1920. Correct, Hosseini said, beaming with pride. That's another point for you. Hey, that's not fair, Bahadur said. Yeah, that's not fair. That's not fair, little Kudub squealed. My game, my rule, said father, replied. 
But I tell you what, Quidav, I will give you another chance. What is there a 69? Quidav closed his eyes and scrunched his, up his face. He thought and thought, but it was not coming. Finally, he said, fight against those among the people of the book who do not believe God in the last day. Good try, Quidav, Hostini said. Who knows where that verse is found? This time, Bahadur shouted out the answer. This is sir 929, Padar. Very good, my son. Another point for you. Bahadur beamed. Quabad looked like he was about to burst out in tears. They were all very competitive boys, and none of them liked to lose, least of all Quabad. Furritz now spoke up. I know Sir 69. May I recite it, Padar? Of course. It's regarding our enemies, Jews and Christians, and those who call themselves Muslims but are not faithful to the Quran. Isn't that right? It is, Hosseini said. But to get the point, you must say the verse. There was a long silence. Are you sure you know it? I think so. Okay, go ahead. God forbids you, Furitz began, began. Forbids you to do what, Hosseini asked. Forbids you to take them for friends and guardians. Go on. There was another long pause. I can't, Furitz said. I'm sorry. It's okay, his father said. Bahadur, can you finish it? Yes, Padar. God forbids you to take them for friends and guardians. Whoever takes them for friends and guardians, those are the wrongdoers. Very impressive, Bahadur, Hosseini claimed. Okay, you get half a point if Furitz gets half a point. Both boys cheered, but Kodbad began to sniffle and wipe his nose. And what do I get, Fadar? he asked, his eyes red and watery. A chance for redemption, Hosseini said. What does that mean? Kobad asked, fighting hard not to cry in front of his brothers, but about to lose the fight. It means I will ask you three questions, and if you get them all right, you will be ahead of your brothers. Kobad's face brightened. Really? Really. Okay, I'm ready, Fadar, I'm ready. Good. Here we go, Hosseini said. What does the Ayatollah say is the purest joy in Islam? I know that, I know that, Kabad shouted. The purest joy in Islam is to kill and be killed for Allah. Very good, Qudab, his father said. One point for you. Qudab was excited. Next question. Yes, yes, I'm ready, Padar. What happens to those who become martyrs in the cause of jihad? I know that one too. Surah 47, 4 through 6 says, As for those who are killed in Allah's cause, he will, he will never render their deeds vain. He will guide them. He will admit them into paradise that he has made known to them. Hosseini and the older boys cheered. Kodab was radiant now. His tears gone. He was on top of the world. Final question. Are you ready, Kodab? Yes, I'm ready. Very well. Does a martyr feel pain when he dies? No, he does not, Padar. A martyr will not feel the pain of death except like how you feel when you are pinched. Seeing his father's pride, Kabad beamed. He was not finished. I know more, I know more, he shouted. Go ahead, my son. The shedding of a martyr's blood will forgive all his sins, and he will go directly to paradise, and he will be decorated with jewels, and he will be in the arms of 72 beautiful virgins, and he will... Kadab stopped. The cheering died down. A puzzled look came over the little boy's face. He cocked his head to the side. What is it, Quidab? His father asked. There was a long pause. Then Quidab asked, What is a virgin father? Hosseini smiled. That little man is a lesson for another day. Who is ready to eat? We are, we are, they yelled. 
They were now far they were now far from the city limits of Tehran, heading southwest on Highway 9 toward the holy city of Qom. Hosini pulled over at a roadside stand and bought the boys some bread and fruit along with some candy bars as special treats. Then they kept driving, talking, and singing along the way. When they pulled off onto a road on the outskirts of Qom, Bahadur asked, Where are we going, Father? To, to an army base? To an army base, boys, Hosini replied. Really? Quibub asked, his eyes wide, chocolate all over his face. Why? You will see. Soon they came to a military checkpoint. Two heavily armed guards ordered the car, car to halt. Husseini shouted, or showed them his papers. They looked in, saw the boys, and waved them all through. As the boys began to see tanks and armored personnel carriers and soldiers carrying weapons and doing drills, they became more excited. Helicopters passed overhead. Nearby, they could hear soldiers training at the firing range. A moment later, they parked by a field where hundreds of children were assembling and forming into lines. We're here, we're here, Hosseini said. Hosseini got the boys out of the car, walked them over to a folding table where the, he wrote their names on a registry, kissed them each on both cheeks, and told them to join the others on the field and do as they were told. Dutifully, they obeyed their father and ran out into the field, eager to learn what this exciting mystery was all about. It was then that the soldiers began passing out red plastic keys, each dangling on a string, one per child until everyone had his own. Then the commanding officer of the base introduced himself and told the children to put the keys around their necks. This, still children of Persia, he bellowed over the loudspeakers, is your key to paradise. Now, what, did, what happened to those boys? The boys ran out into the field to get rid of mines. And those boys were martyred. The keys were, they were, they were, they were designated to go out and clear the minefields. This is something that the children are taught. I wanted to read this brief story to you out of this book because it gives you an idea of what they're training their children for. And when you see Palestinian videos or any Islamic videos saying that either <clears throat> uh, Israel killed, killed these children, it is not Israel who actually ha has done this or is doing this because Israel actually uses a lot of sensitivity when it comes to this. But it is Islam who puts their children in these paths on purpose and, and for the purpose of Allah. So this takes us to the conflict. What exactly is happening this week? Uh, in an article called In Israel, Time for Peace Offer May Run Out, um, you can find this on the Internet. It says this, Jerusalem, with revolutionary fervor sweeping the Middle East, Israel is under mounting pressure to make a far-reaching offer excuse me, to the Palestinians or face a United Nations vote welcoming the state of Palestine as a member whose territory includes all of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. The Palestinian Authority has been steadily building support for such a resolution in September, a move that could place Israel into a diplomatic vice. 
Israel would be occupying the land belonging to a fellow United Nations member, land it is controlled and settled for more than four decades, and some of which is which it expects to keep in in any two-state solution. Quote, we are facing a diplomatic political tsunami that the majority of the public is unaware of and that will speak in September, said Uhad Barak, Israel's defense minister, at a conference in Tel Aviv last month. It is a very dangerous situation, one that requires action, he added. Paralysis, rhetoric, inaction will deepen the isolation of Israel. With aides to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu thrashing out proposals to the Palestinian, President Shimon Peres is due at the White House on Tuesday to meet with President Obama and explore ways out of the bind. The United Nations is still uncertain how to move the process forward, according to uh, diplomats here. Israel's offer is expected to include transfer of some West Bank territory outside its settlements to Palestinian control and may suggest a regional component, an international conference, to serve as a response to the Arab peace initiatives. But Palestinian leaders, emboldened by support for their statehood, bid dismiss the expected offer as insufficient continue to demand an end to settlement building before talks can begin. Quote, we want to generate pressure on Israel to make it feel isolated and help it understand that there can be no talks without a stop of settlement, said Nabil Shat, Shat, I don't know how to say the name, who leads the Foreign Affairs Department of Fatah, which is the the group that the PLO uh, under Arafat when he was alive, that was the main party of the Palestinian Authority. Without that, our goal is, in, is membership in the United Nations General Assembly in September. So their vote is whether or not they're going to be part of the assembly and be accepted in the UN. And then from there, they're going to actually take the land because uh, it's going to be illegal, apparently, for an occupied uh, one country to occupy another country. So we're going to talk about is this an occupation or or is this uh, uh, not? We're, we'll talk about that. Israeli, Palestinian, and Western officials interviewed on the current impasse, most of them requesting, requesting anonymity, expressed an unusual degree of permission or pessimism about a peaceful solution. All agreed that the turmoil across the Middle East had prompted opposing responses from Israel and much of the world. Israel, seeing the prospect of even more hostile governments as its neighbors, is insisting on caution and time before taking any significant steps. It also wants to build an extensive long-term security guarantees in any two-state solution, but those inevitably that inevitably infringed the sovereignty of a Palestinian state. The international community tends to draw the opposite conclusion. Foreign Secretary William Hogg of Britain, for example, laid blast, said last week that one of the most important lessons to be learned from the Arab Spring was that 
The legitimate aspirations cannot be ignored and must be addressed. He added, referring to Israeli-Palestinian talks, it cannot be in anyone's interest if the new order of the region is determined at a time of minimum hope in the peace process. The Palestinian focus on September stems not only from the fact that the General Assembly holds its annual meeting then, it also it is also because Prime Minister Salem Fayyad announced in September 2009 that his government would be ready for independent statehood in two years and that Mr. Obama said last September that he expected the framework for an independent Palestinian state to be declared in a year, which that time is over with. Mr. Obama did not indicate <clears throat> what the borders of that state would be, uh, assuming they would be determined through direct negotiations, but with Israeli-Palestinian talks broken off months ago, and the Middle East in the process of profound change, many argue that outside pressure is needed. Germany, France, and Britain say negotiations should be based on the 1967 lines with equivalent land swaps, exactly what Netanyahu's government rejects because it says it pre predetermines its outcome. Does the world think it's going to force Israel to declare the 1967 lines and giving up Jerusalem as a basis for negotiation? Asked the top Israeli official who spoke on condition of anonymity, that will never happen. While the Obama administration has referred in the past to the 1967 lives as a basis for talks, it has not decided whether to back the European Union, the United Nations, and Russia, the other members of the so-called quartet, in declaring them the starting point, diplomats said the quartet meets on April 15th in Berlin. Israel, which has has settlements hundreds of thousands of Jews inside the West Bank and East Jerusalem, acknowledged that it will have to withdraw from much of the land it now occupies there. But it hopes to hold on to the largest settlement blocks and much of East Jerusalem as well as the border to East the East with Jordan, and does not want to enter into talks with the other side's position as the starting point. Now, that was true even before it, its closest ally, the Arab world, President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt, was driven from power, helping fuel protest uh, movements that now roil over countries, including Jordan, which has its own peace agreement with Israel. So they're in hot water with um, the, the, the uprisings that are going on. Now, whatever we put forward has to be grounded in security arrangements because of what is going on regionally, says Zelman Shaval, one of the handful of Netanyahu's aides drawing up the Israeli proposal that may be delivered as a speech to the United States Congress in May. We are facing the rebirth of the Eastern Front as Iran grows strong. We have to secure the Jordan Valley, and no Israeli government is going to move tens of thousands of Israelis from, from their homes quickly. Those Israelis live in the West Bank settlements, the source of much of the disagreement, not only with the Palestinians, but with the world. Not a single government supports Israel's settlements. 
settlements is what this article says. The Palestinians say the settlements are proof that the Israelis do not really want a Palestinian state to arise since they're built on the land that should go to that state. Now, all these years, the main obstacle to peace has been the settlements, Nimram Hamad, a political advisor to President Abbas, said. They always say, but you've never made it a condition of negotiations before, and we say that that was a mistake. The Israelis counter that the real problem is Palestinian refusal to accept openly a Jewish state here and ongoing anti-Israeli incitement in praise of violence on the Palestinian airwaves. Another central obstacle to the establishment of the state of Palestine has been the division between West Bank and Gaza, the first run by the Palestinian Authority and the second by Hamas. Lately, President Abbas has thought to bridge the gap, asking to go to Gaza to seek reconciliation through the agreed interim government that would set up a parliament and presidential elections. But Hamas, were, um, Hamas worried it would lose such elections, hopefully that, um, <clears throat> and hopefully that the regional turmoil would work in its favor, that Egypt, for example, might be taken over by its ally, the Muslim Brotherhood, has reacted uh, coolly. Efforts are still underway to restart peace talks, but if, as expected, negotiations do not resume some September, uh, come September, which is right now in this coming week, the Palestinian Authority seems to set uh, seems set to go ahead with plans to ask the General Assembly to accept it as a member. Diplomats involved in this issue say most countries, more than a hundred, are expected to vote yes, meaning it will pass. What happens then? Well, some Palestinian leaders say relations with Israel would change. We will re-examine our commitments toward Israel, especially our security commitments, suggested Hannah Amrek, who is uh, on the 18-member ruling board of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, referring to cooperation between Palestinian and Israeli troops. The main sense about Israel is that we are fed up. Mr. Shaf said Israel would then be in daily violation of the rights of a fellow member state and diplomatic and illegal consequences could follow, all of which would be painful for Israel. In the Haaretz newspaper on Thursday, Arav Shavat, who is a political centrist, drew a comparison between the 2001, uh, 2011 and the biggest military setback Israel ever faced, the 1973 war. He wrote that 2011 is going to be a diplomatic, be a diplomatic 1973 because a Palestinian state will be recognized internationally. Every military base in the West Bank will be con- contravening the sovereignty of an independent UN member state. He added a diplomatic siege from without and a civil uprising from within will grip Israel in a stranglehold. This and, and so then there is a revision in April 2011 on this article, and it says a diplomatic memo 
article last Sunday about the growing possibility that even without an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement, the United Nations General Assembly might approve a resolution in September granting statehood to the Palestinian on Israeli-controlled land referred incompletely to the options available to the United States for blocking such a resolution. So we haven't blocked this resolution and so in the U.S. It has, has no veto, veto power in the General Assembly, as the article stated, but such a resolution would first require a recommendation from the Security Council where the United States could exercise a veto. So that is what really, in a nutshell, through this, you know, in this article is talking about uh, what is going to be happening this week. I got a caller on the line. I'm going to see if I can actually answer it this time. You're on the air. May I help you? You're on the air. Do you have something to say? Hello, you're on the air. We got checks. I'm sorry? We got checks. I can't understand you. Looks like he's calling from another country, so uh, and wants to say something in regards to uh, this this discussion here, and I can't understand him. So um, I'm going to have to let him go, and because we have a bad connection, if you can find another connection, we'll let you come in and talk. Okay. Somebody wanted to make a comment, and it sounded like he was from another country. It would have been interesting to see what he would have to say about this mandate that is going to happen this September. I'd love to have a good conversation and have uh, uh, somebody's input. Actually, from there, that would be great. I actually talked to a friend of mine from uh, Pakistan this morning, and I always love to talk to him because he is a Christian who is facing Islamic persecution in in the country of Pakistan. Uh, You can pray for this fellow brother. His name is um, Nujin. I don't know if I can give his name or not. So I will have to ask him if I can give his name on the air. But anyway, pray for this brother in Pakistan who I'm in relationship with. uh, And uh, uh, just remember our brothers and sisters across uh, the seas. Okay, so what are these mandates? Let's kind of go through this and uh, kind of see what what um, uh, we're talking about here. Now, some a lot of us don't understand what all this entails um, in regards to um, these mandates. And so I'm going to go through them um, briefly because of time. But uh, the Palestinian mandate on July 24, 1922 is an important one. A lot of people don't know this or think of this one. Uh, The Council of the League of Nations came up with this mandate. Um, What what is the League of Nations? The World Organization established in 1920 to promote international cooperation and peace. Now that was what the League of Nations was. It was first proposed in 1918 by President Woodrow Wilson, although the United States never joined the League of Nations. We never did join them essentially powerless, it was officially dissolved in 1946. 
So the League of Nations did not stay um, <clears throat> around that long. It was replaced by the U United Nations. Uh, purpose and intent of this mandate in 1922, the Palestinian man Palestine mandate, uh, it says, whereas recognition has thereby been given to the historical connections of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for a reconstituting their national homeland in that country. So we see in 1922 that uh, as a people, as a nation, we were trying to help uh, establish that Israel could become a nation. Uh, if you hear some thundering in the background, I am in the state of Missouri here in the United States, and we've been having storms all day. Um, I actually, if those of you who heard about the Joplin tor tornadoes, uh, that was in, um, we live about 40 minutes uh, east of that, so you can pray for us today. So if you hear some rumbling in the background, that is what um, I'm experiencing today. There are a lot of storms. I have a backup in case uh, the electricity goes down. But if there is a tornado warning, I don't know what I'm going to do. I probably will join all the other great Missourians who will go out and have a cup of coffee. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, let's back to the League of Nations resolution. Article 2. The mandatory shall the mandatory shall be responsible for placing the country under such political, administrative, and economic conditions as will secure the establishment of the Jewish national home as laid down in the preamble and the development of self-governing institutions and also for safeguarding the civil and religious rights of all the inhabitants of Palestine. So... Um, <clears throat> Uh, that is the the establishment in 1922 was uh, uh, to really start the establishment of the, the the state of Israel or the nation of Israel. Now, the United Nations, uh, there are 193 United Nations member states, and each of them is a member of the United Nations General Assembly. And this is what replaced the League of Nations uh, in 1946 or whatever that was. Um, the criteria for admission of new members are set out in the United Nations Charter, Chapter 2, Article 4, as follows. And this is what you have to do to be a member state. One, the, member, the membership in the United Nations is open to all other peace-loving states which accept the obligations to contain uh, obligations contained in the present charter and in the judgment of the organization are able and willing to carry out these obligations. That is one of the uh, uh, admissions. The admission of any such state, number two, to membership in the United Nations will be effective by decision of the General Assembly upon the recommendation of the Security Council. Now, why uh, we are giving the Palestinian uh, uh, a vote on this in, or in becoming a peace-loving state, it hasn't really been a peaceful situation. So this is kind of ironic. A recommendation for admission from the Security Council requires affirmative votes from at least nine of the Council's 15 members, with none of the five per permanent members voting against. The Security Council's recommendation must then be subsequently approved in the General Assembly by the by two-thirds majority vote. 
Now, in principle, it says that only sovereign states can become UN members, and Palestine is not a sovereign state, and currently all UN members are sovereign states, although a few members were not sovereign when they joined the UN. So that's why they're kind of taking this in consideration, because Palestine is not a state. One of these um, these um, so, you know, these two members, the Vatican City is the only sovereign state with general international recognition that is not a UN member. Um, <clears throat> because a state can only be admitted to the UN by the approval of the Security Council and the General Assembly, a number of states that may be considered sovereign states according to the Montevito Convention criteria are not members because the UN does not consider them to possess sovereignty, mainly due to the lack of international recognition or opposition from certain members. So in addition to the member states, the UN also invites non-member states intergovernmental organizations and other international organizations and entities whose statehood or sovereignty are not precisely defined to become observers at the General Assembly, allowing them to participate and speak but not vote in the General Assembly. So it kind of gives you an idea of what's going on here. There are in the, the uh, there are 193 members in the United Nation, and as I go through these, and I could be wrong, there could be more. Uh, I have actually counted 57 members are Islamic. Now, for those of you who have ever sat or or watched the United Nations discussions, uh, they have not been favorable to Israel uh, in voting in favor of Israel. So it's not been really something that Israel has been um, given favorable options or votes. Um, so what is the UN 1947 partition plan in Palestine? The United Nations partition plan for Palestine was a resolution adopted on the 29th of November in 1947 by the General Assembly of the United Nations. It is its title was United Nations General Assembly Resolution 181. You've been hearing that, uh, Resolution 181, and the future government of Palestine. The resolution noted Britain's planned termination of the British mandate for Palestine and recommended the partition of Palestine into two states, one Jewish and one Arab, with the with the Jerusalem Bethlehem area being under special international protection and ministered by the United Nations. The resolution included a highly detailed description of the recommended boundaries for each proposed state. The resolution also contained a plan for an economic union between the proposed states and a plan for the protection of religious and minority rights. The resolution sought to address the conflicting objectives and claims to the mandated mandate territory or two competing movements, Jewish nationalism, which is Zionism, and Arab nationalism, as well as to resolve the plight of the Jews displaced as a result of the Holocaust. This, the resolution called for the withdrawal of British forces and termination of the mandate by August 
1948 and the establishment of the new independent states by 1st October 1948. Very big move here. A transitional period under the United Nations auspicious was to begin with the adoption of the resolution and lasting until the establishment of the two states. However, <clears throat> war broke out and a partition plan was never implemented by the Security Council. On May 5, 1948, the United Nations Security Council reached an impasse when it refused to pass a resolution which would have accepted the partition plan as a basis for Security Council action. The United States subsequently recommended a temporary UN trusteeship for Palestine without prejudice to the charter of the eventual political settlement. And the Security Council voted to send the matter back to the General Assembly for further deliberation. The General Assembly decided to appoint a mediator and relieved uh, the Palestinian Commission from any further exercise of responsibility under Resolution 181. This has been talked about um, quite a bit, so that's why I'm trying to give you an idea about this. The proposed plan was accepted by the leaders of the Jewish community. community uh, here it is in Palestine through the Jewish agency. However, the plan was rejected by leaders of the Arab community, community, the Palestinian Arab Higher Committee, who were supported in their rejection by the states of the Arab League. So it's all the Arab states are rejecting this. In a commission, communication to the United Nations, Palestine Commission dated 19 January 1948, the Arab Higher Committee for Palestine stated that it was determined to persist in rejection to the partition and in refusal to recognize UNO resolution with, with this respect and anything deriving therefrom. Two minor expectations to this rejectionist line were the National Liberation League in Palestine, an Arab-Palestinian communist fraction which supported the partition plan since it followed all Soviet policies. And Emir Abdullah of Transjordan, who instinctively, uh, in <clears throat> strictly private discussion was in favor of the partition plan under the assumption that the Arab state under the plan would be annexed to Transjordan. Annexed to Transjordan is very important. Yet never publicly accepted the plan. He later suggested that Transjordan should annex the whole mandate, ter mandate territory and establish a Jewish autonomous entity to be eventually aligned with the rest of the Arab countries. So you see the intentions right from the beginning. Now, the task of this, the UN resolution marked the start of the 1947-48 civil war in mandatory Palestine, and Britain announced that it would not accept the partition plan, but refused to enforce it, arguing it was not acceptable to both sides. In September 1947, before any plan for a smooth transition of power had been formed, the British government unilaterally announced that the mandate for Palestine would end on May 14, 1948. During their withdrawal, the British refused to hand over territory 
or authority to any successor on May 14, 1948, the day that Britain had announced it would end the mandate, and the day when the last high commissioner left the territory, the Jewish community in Palestine published a declaration of independence, which announced the creation of the State of Israel. The declaration did not define what the borders of the new state were. On the following day, May 15th, most of the remaining British troops departed. Also on May 15th, five Arab armies crossed the borders of what had formerly been Mandate Palestine. This event marked the beginning of the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. And uh, on my uh, on the show in the beginning of the show when you when you're looking at it and as you're listening you see some pictures flipping uh, you can see uh, a map of Palestine there are other maps and one I have that clar- clarifies the partition par- partition plan and what it looked like at that time it was actually divided the land up into sections where some was Arab Arab state and some was a Jewish state. But that never happened. Now, the resolution of 181 also focused on Jerusalem. And that <clears throat> was in November 29, 1947. Um, one things that it said about Jerusalem were, were these. I'll just briefly say it because, this, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time Uh, to go into all of what it said about Jerusalem, but it says no restrictions shall be imposed on the free use of any inhabitant of the city or any language in private intercourse, in commerce, in religion, in the press, or in publication of any kind or at public meetings. Also said, holy places, existing rights in respect of holy places and religious buildings or sites shall not be denied or impaired which we see that that has been broken by uh, the uh, Islamic uh, fraction in the the city of Jerusalem. Also, with the fact that they are, uh, we're cleaning out the the, um, um, archaeological evidence underneath the temple and building a mosque underneath there, they were destroying all the archaeological evidence that connected the temple to Israel and to that Temple Mount. Free access to the holy places and religious buildings or sites and the free exercise of worship shall be secured in conformity with the existing rights and subject to the requirements of public order and decorum. Another thing, holy places and religious buildings or sites shall be preserved. <clears throat> the protection of the holy places, religious buildings, and sites located in the city of Jerusalem shall be in special concern for the governor. Now, you can see that the UN did not do so well at protecting a lot of the Israeli um, uh, archives and um, archaeological evidences um, as um, the Islamic and Palestinian mandates are people, uh, government is actually going in and decimating a lot of the sacred areas that belong to Israel. Now, what was the Israel-Transjordan Armistice Agreement? You'll hear that a lot. I will briefly tell you about that. In April 3rd, 1949, uh, in the spring of that summer of 49, 
1949, agreements were signed between Israel and its neighbors establishing Israel's armistice lines. Uh, <clears throat> to some extent, these lines overlapped the borderline of Palestine during the British Mandate period, or they were close to it, but the exception of, the, of Judea and Samaria region and the surrounding area of Gaza Strip, these lines were drawn up on the assumption that it, they would be temporary and would be replaced within a few years by permanent borders, meaning that uh, that's which is in dispute today. Were, were actually, um, you know, the, the lines were drawn up temporarily and it was supposed to go permanent in a few years, but it never did. Much of the international border between mandatory Palestine and Egypt became the armistice line between Israel and Egypt. The armistice line with Lebanon was close to the international border that existed during the British mandate and overlapped it. And these two lines did not correspond to the battle front lines as they existed during the cessation of hostilities. And Israel withdrew in both cases to the mandatory border line, which became the armistice line. The armistice lines with Syria and Jordan closely corresponded to the front lines. Now, it would be easier for you to Google these armistice lines and to see what it is. I have a map in front of me that shows clearly what these lines were. It's harder to explain it when I can't show you, as I would love to show you <clears throat> if I was on video or if I had, you know, uh, 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 projector on my screen. If you're patient with me in these kind of shows, I will eventually get there so I can show you and kind of point to you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Excuse me. But for now, uh, it would be, if you're interested, go and uh, Google that and find a map of the armistice lines. Now, there's a very good video out today and it's very popular. Over 300,000 people have watched this video. I have not put this clip. It's just really short. On my uh, show prep or my um, advertisement yet because I wanted to <clears throat> get through the show. And then I will post it so you can see it. But I want to go through this video. I'm not, you know, I want to say what it says on here because it's very important what it says, and it really helps you to to understand it. It's called The Truth About the West Bank, and some of you probably have seen this little clip. It's, it's great. I love it. <clears throat> it was created by uh, StandWithUs.com, www.StandWithUs.com, a product produced for the Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs in cooperation with this group that I just men men mentioned. Now, the person on the video is called, his name is Danny Alon. Don't know if I'm saying his name right, but um, I would encourage you to go and take a peek at this video, uh, this clip. It's about six minutes long. But I'm going to give you what it actually says right now, and it will help you enlighten you about what's going on here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Often on the news, we hear the terms occupied territories or 67 borders and illegal settlements, 
The story we usually hear sounds very simple. During the Six-Day War, Israel captured the West Bank from the Palestinians, refused the United Nations demands to retreat, and illegally built settlements. But is that really the case? Let's try to understand the situation a little bit better. We'll start with a simple but extremely important question. From whom did Israel capture the West Bank? From the Palestinians? No. In 1967, there was no Arab nation or state by the name of Palestine. Actually, was there ever? Israel took over the West Bank from Jordan in an act of self-defense. After Jordan joined a war launched by Egypt and Syria to destroy Israel. Oh, by the way, destroying countries is rather illegal. The United Nations, back in 1967, rejected repeated Arab and Soviet attempts to declare Israel as an aggressor. Security Council Resolution 242 did not demand a unilateral Israeli Withdrawal, rather, the United Nations called for negotiating a solution which would leave Israel with secure and recognized boundaries, in effect, defensible borders. Wait a second. What was Jordan doing in the West Bank in the first place? What was its legal justification? Well, Jordan had the, you know what, what? It had no legal justification. Jordan simply occupied it during the previous attempt to destroy the newly established state of Israel in 1948, changing the commonly accepted name Judea and Samaria to the West Bank. But that did not really convince anybody, and almost no one recognized the legality of Jordan's occupation not even any of the other Arab states. So, if Jordan had not legal had no legal claim to the land and Palestine did not exist, whose territory is it? Let's go a little further back in time. Don't worry. No. No, not the days of the Bible, only about 100 years. Until 1917, the Ottoman Empire occupied the whole region after losing the war. One of the Ottomans relinquished their 500-year uh, control to the Allied forces, which decided to divide the whole empire into countries. Britain foreign, Britain's foreign minister, Lord Balfour, recognized the Jewish people's historical right to their homeland. A small area, equivalent to about 1% of the Middle East, was designated for this purpose. 26% on the West Bank side, including the West Bank, and 74% on the other side of the Jordan. For Jordan, so Jordan had a country, uh, 74% of that section that was divided up for them was for Jordan. Britain received a mandate from the League of Nations to promote the establishment of a Jewish homeland. But, wait a second, do you realize what happened? The Jewish homeland originally included not only the West Bank, but also the East Bank of Jordan River. I guess you cannot say the Jewish people have not accepted some painful compromises already. 
Anyway, the League of Nations recognition of a Jewish homeland, which includes the West Bank, was reaffirmed by the United Nations after the Second World War. With the British mandate ending, United Nations General Assembly Resolution 181 recommended the establishment of two states, one Jewish and one Arab. The Jews accepted it and went on to create the state of Israel. So that would be the Jordan side, the east of the Jordan, was created as the Arab state, the two-state solution. While the Arabs refused to compromise and launched a war to destroy the newly established Jewish state. So you see the picture here? The two-state solution was to divide along the line of the Jordan River, and on the east side would be Jordan for the Arab states, and on the west would be the Israel for for their establishment. But the Jordan, but because the Arab states did not want Israel to exist there at all, thought they would launch an attack against Israel, who only had the 20-some percent of the land that was actually allotted to a two-state solution. Resolution 181, a non-binding recommendation in the first place, remained with no legal standing. At the end of the war, a ceasefire line was formed where the Israeli and Arab forces stopped fighting. At the insistence of the Arab leaders, this line was defined as having no political significance. So although this line is commonly referred to as the 1967 border, it is not from 1967, and it was never an international border. This is why a more exact legal definition for the West Bank, according to the international law, is really the same as in so many other areas where there are no uh, territorial where where there are known territorial disputes, but which are not defined as occupied, for example, Zuraba, the Tums Island, the Western Sahara, amongst many others, they are not occupied territories, but rather disputed territories. So let's return for a moment to our illustration and examine the complete chain of events. Israel's presence in the West Bank is a result of a war of self-defense. The West Bank should not be considered occupied because there was no previous legal sovereign in the area and therefore the real definition should be disputed territory. The 1947 partition plan was no current, has no current standing while Israel's claim to the land was clearly recognized by the international community during the 20th century. That is why the presence and construction of Israel's Israeli settlements in the West Bank should not be considered illegal. These are not just my own opinions. They are based on the conclusions made by world-renowned jurists like Professor Eugene Rousseau, Justice Arthur Goldberg, and Stephen Schwabel, who headed the International Courts of Justice. So what's the solution for the dispute over the West Bank? Unfortunately, there is no magic solution, but the only way a solution will ever be reached is if we base our negotiations in legal and historical, on legal and historical facts. So please, let's stop using the terms occupied territories and 67 borders. They're simply not politically correct. Put this in the video. It's a great video, and I will... Once the show gets done, I will post it and you to understand what this argument is all about. 
So what is this big resolution they're talking about in Resolution 242 in 1967, those armistice or those lines? I've got the... uh, Actually, the resolution right in front of me, and I will read it to you. I don't have a whole lot of time yet left, but I am going to do what I can. The Security Council expressing its continuing concern with the grave situation in the Middle East, emphasizing the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war and the need to work for a just and lasting peace in which every state in the area can live in security emphasizing further that all member states in their acceptance of the Charter of the United Nations have undertaken a commitment to act in accordance with the Article 2 of the Charter. One affirms that the the fulfillment of Charter principles require that the establishment of a just and lasting peace in the Middle East, which should include the application of both the following principles. Withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in recent conflict. Two, determination of all claims or states of belligerency and respect for the acknowledgement of the sovereignty, territorial integrity, and political independence of every state in the area and the right to live in peace with secure and recognized borders free from threats or acts of force. Two, affirms further the necessity for guaranteeing freedom and navigation through international waterways in the area. B, for achieving a just settlement of refugee problems. C, for guaranteeing the territory and viability and political independence of every state in the area. <clears throat> through measures including the establishment of demilitarized zones. Three, request the Security General to designate a special representative to proceed to the Middle East to establish and maintain contacts with the states concerned in in order to promote agreement and assist efforts to achieve a peaceful and accepted settlement in order in accordance with the provisions and principles in this resolution. Four, request the Secretary General to report to the Security Council on the progress of the efforts and special representative as soon as possible adopted unanimously at the 1382nd meeting. Decision. On 8 December 1967, the following statement, which reflected the view of the members of the Council, was circulated by the President as a Security Council document. As regards document S8, 053 at 312 brought to the attention of the Security Council the members recalling the consensus reached in the 1366 meeting on July 1967. Ninth, recognize the necessity of the enlargement of the Secretary General of the number of observers in the Swiss Canal zone and the provision of additional technical material and means of transportation. Now, That's Resolution 242. I know you probably didn't understand a word it said, but that's okay. Now you know what it actually says. So what does it all mean? Well, let's see how they interpreted international interpretations of what the negotiations for the UN Security Council Resolution 242 was. Let me tell you, let me... (laughs) 
this is out of the fight for Jerusalem, Radical Islam, the West, and the Future of the Holy City by Dor Gold. He actually has all these resolutions in the back of his book. It's interesting. And this 242 probably was just a piece of it. So let me go through in the little bit of time that I have left. I know that there's a caller who wants to participate, but maybe he can participate next week if he joins me then, because I only have about 12 minutes left of my show. And so I'd like to get through some of these ending things so that we can have a full rounded scope, because next week I am going to talk further about the intentions of uh, Islam uh, to actually annihilate Israel. So, and what if, you know, so we'll go into that hopefully at the very end of the show, just briefly, just to give you an idea of what we're going to talk about next week, uh, with along, along with what is resulted of this meeting, if it does occur. Okay, this is the interpretation from several uh, countries that were there of this resolution. Um, George uh, in Great Britain, George Brown, British Foreign Secretary, in 1967, on January 19, 1970, he said this, I have been asked over and over again to clarify, modify, or improve the wording, but I do not intend to do that. The phrasing of the resolution was very carefully worked out, and it was a difficult and complicated exercise to get it accepted by the UN Security Council. I formulated the Security Council resolution. Before we submitted it to the council, we showed it to be Arab leaders, to the Arab leaders. The proposal said Israel will withdraw from the territories that were occupied and not from the territories, which means that Israel will not withdraw from all of the territories. This was in the Jerusalem Post, January 23, 1970. Michael Stewart, Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, in reply to a question in Parliament on November 17, 1969, said this. This is the question. What is the British interpretation of the wording of the 1967 resolution? Does the right honorable gentleman understand it to mean that the Israelis should withdraw from all territories taken in the late war? Mr. Stewart said this, no, sir, this is not the phrase used in the resolution. The resolution speaks of a secure and of secure and recognized boundaries. These words must be read concurrently with statement of withdrawal. Michael Stewart, in a reply to a question in Parliament December 9, 1969, said this, as I have explained before, there is reference in the vital United Nations Security Council resolution both to withdraw from the territories and to secure and re- to secure and recognize the boundaries. As I have told you, the House previously in the House previously, we believe that these two things should be read concurrently, and that the omission of the word "all" before the word "territories" is deliberate. United Nations, President Lyndon Johnson, September, or the United States, this is what we said, President Lyndon Johnson, September 10th, 1968. We are not the ones to say where other nations should draw lines between them that will assure each the greatest security. It is clear, however, that a return to the situation of June 4th, 1967 will not bring 
peace, there must be secure and there must be recognized borders. Some such lines must be agreed to by the neighbors involved. Joseph Sisko, Assistant Secretary of State, July 12, 1970, on NBC's Meet the Press, said this, the resolution did not say withdrawal to the pre-June 5 lines. The resolution said that the parties must negotiate to achieve agreement on the so-called final, secure, and recognized border. In other words, the question of the final borders is a matter of negotiations between parties. Eugene F. Restell, professor of law in public affairs at Yale University, who in 1967 was Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, said this, a paragraph, paragraph I of the resolution calls for the withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict and not from the territories occupied in the recent conflict and not from the territories occupied in the recent conflict. Repeated attempts to amend this sentence by inserting the word the failed in the Security Council, it is therefore not legally possible to assert that the provision requires Israeli withdrawal from the territories now occupied under the ceasefire resolutions to the Amistad demarcation lines. This is out of the American Journal of International Law, Volume 64, September 1970, page 69. What did the USSR say at the time when it did exist? It said this, Deputy Foreign Minister Vasily Kuznetsov, I don't know how to say his last name, Chov, November 11, 1967, said, phrases such as secure and recognized borders, what does that mean? What boundaries are those, these? Secure, recognized by whom, for what? Who is going to judge how secure they are? Who must recognize them? There is certainly much leeway for different interpretations, which retain from Israel the right to establish new boundaries and to withdraw its troops only as far as the lines which it judges convenient. France, Armand, Armand Berard, permanent representative to the UN November 22nd, 1967, said this. We must admit, however, that on the point which the French delegation has always stressed as being essential, the question of withdrawal from the occupation, occupation forces, the res resolution which has been adoption, if we refer to the French text, which is equally authentic with English, leaves no room for any ambiguity since it speaks of withdrawal from des terres occupées, which indisputably corresponds to the expression occupied territories, not the occupied territories. Canada, Canada said George Intef, a permanent representative to the UN, forgive me those who in Canada who heard me say that name, UN November 9, 1967 said, if our aim is to bring about a settlement or a political solution, there must be withdrawal to secure and recognized borders. Brazil, last one, hang on there. Geraldo de Carvalho Silos, permanent representative to the UN November 22, 1967 said, 
we keep constantly in mind that a just and lasting peace in the Middle East has necessarily to be based on secure permanent boundaries freely agreed upon and negotiated by the neighboring states. So then, the question then is asked, what is defendable borders? What are Israel's uh, defensible borders? What are its essential security needs? Okay. There are four defendable borders. The Jordan Rift Valley, this is Israel's eastern frontier. It forms a natural barrier between Israel, Jordan, Iraq, and Iran. It is 1,200 feet below sea level and rises to 3,000 feet, creating a 4,200 virtual, uh, foot virtual wall. It's similar to the Philadelphia cor- Corridor in which in that it creates a strip of protection from which to protect itself from her enemies. And so Israel must retain control over the Jordan Valley to have secure border on that section. So you may ask, what is the Philadelphia Corridor? That is it. You'll see on a map, sometimes there is a strip right between Gaza and Egypt, and that is a small strip of land between these two places, Gaza and Egypt. When Israel left that area, gave it over to Gaza, and became a superhighway for weapons and territory. So they had that little slip. Okay, quickly, the mountain ridge. That rises up 3,000 feet. It dominates most of Israel's most populous cities, its industry, and airfields. Missiles launched from the Judean hills can be a direct threat to Jerusalem. That's that mountain ridge that you'll see in, in the map that's considered West Bank. Israel's, and, and so uh, Israel's only international airport, Ben Gurion, would be in its firing range as well as Jerusalem, and even a primitive rocket and shoulder-launched anti-missile can hit those things. They'll be under threat. More advanced weapons would hit almost every point in Israel if if they had gotten uh, this land. If Israel would be forced to accept the 1949 armistice lines, Israel would be reduced to a nine-mile waistline, and impos- it will be impossible to defend itself. So any future agreement must include Israeli control over key areas of the mountain range and a demilitarized Palestinian state. Unified airspace control is the third. Israel's narrow border means that military aircraft could cross the entire country in under four minutes. In less than two minutes, enemy aircraft would be able to penetrate Israel's airspace through the Jordan Valley less uh, uh, Jordan fell less than two minutes and attacked Jerusalem. To defend against any hostile attack, the aircraft must be shut down 10 miles east of the capital to prevent it from crashing into uh, major population centers. Therefore, Israel must be able to identify hostile aircraft before they reach the Jordan Valley, which is that disputed territory. So to defend it itself, Israel must control the airspace over the West Bank. The fourth one, uh, the last, the transportation arteries. Israel's transportation arteries is, in particular, the Trans-Israel Highway, enable travel and connection between Israel's regions. They also assure the mobility of Israel's defense forces in case of attack. Protection of these vital areas, arteries, is essential in order to ensure that civilians aren't victims of terrorist gunfire, 
Two, regions of the country cannot be easily cut off. Three, the mobility of Israel's defense um, forces is not easily cut off nor hindered in the case of invasion. To defend Israel, Israel must control its main arteries of transportation. Uh, <clears throat> there is an enormous uncertainty of future trends in the Middle East. Iran is determined to become the supreme power when the U.S. withdraws from Iraq, another issue altogether. No one can guarantee the future of many of the current regimes, but today more than ever it is crucial to ensure defensible borders for Israel, and that is how Israel defines these borders. So that's why there's this big push. Well, my time has run out, and I only have a few seconds to say my goodbyes. I am Brenda Johnson. I am the host of As the Day Approaches. I want to thank every single one of you for joining me today on this broadcast. Those of you who called in, especially the last caller, if you'd like to call next week, I will take you and see if I can get you on here if we have a good connection. Thank you, and God bless you.